Hello and welcome to episode 156 of the Cognicast, a podcast about software and the people who create it. I'm Russ Olson. Well, this week we have a really special episode lined up for you. To start out, we're introducing a new host, Christian Romney. Christian describes himself as a technologist, a captain, I think he means a boat, a coach, husband, and dad. And as you're about to find out, Christian has a voice that was just made for podcasting. Our guest this week is another Cognitech, Marshall Thompson. As you're about to hear, Marshall's interests range from closure to datomic to molecular biology to fly fishing. So sit back, open your ears and your mind to Christian and Marshall and episode 156 of the Cognicast. Welcome, everybody. So here we go. Welcome, everybody. Today is Friday, November 13th, 2020, and you are listening to the Cognicast. I'm your host, Christian Romney, and our guest today is my colleague and friend, Marshall Thompson. Marshall, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, Christian. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So this is uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. Um, I should apologize now to everybody and to you especially. This is my first podcast episode. Usually you have the extremely talented Gotti Shaben doing this, uh, but uh, I think he and I are going to alternate a little bit. I'm looking forward to it. Well, I'm honored to be your initiating uh, guest. Yeah, thanks a lot. It'll be memorable. So before we dive into the conversation, I've, I've done, you know, tried to do some homework and make this conversation interesting to listen to. And I certainly have a whole bunch of questions that I want to ask you. But before we do that, you may know, as being a longtime listener of the Cognicast, that we like to start off by asking our guests for an experience of art. Yeah. And, and I've thought about this a lot, of course, because I knew, you know, this was coming. And I have, like I'm sure most of us, tons and tons of those experiences in my life that, and it's hard. But when somebody puts you on the spot, you're like, wait a minute, wait, what art? Did I? When did I go to a museum last? Right. But I think one of the the most memorable, relatively recent ones was around some of the civil unrest that was happening, you know, throughout this country uh, that sort of came up this year about around, you know, mistreatment and and police action and people just sort of feeling very left out by their their country um and by their their society uh a day or two after some of those riots broke out and and a lot of towns in the u.s were sort of expecting additional demonstrations i went downtown in durham now we're all in the pandemic right so i actually went down with a mask on to pick up dinner from one of our favorite takeout places and like i think probably most of us have seen they sort of boarded up the the windows right on main street um, where, you know, businesses and, and stuff were trying to sort of protect their property there. But instead of it still being these sort of very drab and depressing plywood facades on these things, people had come and painted these stunning murals. And in fact, they were doing it as I walked down the street. So I was walking to get, I think it was Indian food. And there were a bunch of different, each panel sort of was assigned to a different artist. And 
there were these women and they were out there and they were they were exhausted and they were dirty and they had overalls with paint all over them because they were painting a huge mural on the wall. But it was super uplifting because these were all messages of hope and togetherness. And, you know, it really spoke to me that that, yes, there have been some hard times, but this is one of the ways that I think we can all really join together. And like it, it was really just a moving experience. It was pretty cool to see. Wow, that sounds really cool. And yeah, I mean, that really is, you know, one of the most powerful qualities of art and music is their ability to bridge divides and connect human beings. That is a really cool story. I wonder, did you take any pictures? I did. Um, I'll say, I think, of course, the you know, on my cell phone and they're terrible, but, but yes, I'll find them. And I think, I think I read that the boards were going to be taken down and put like in a Durham city museum or a county museum or something. So maybe I'll try to look up uh, where they actually ended up. Cause some of those were, they were really neat. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. We'd, we'd love to include that in the show notes. Very neat. You know, I had a, a similar experience recently here. So I'm, I'm in South Florida and uh, we have a really cool part of town called Wynwood. I don't know if you're, are you familiar with it at all? No, I've never been to Miami. Oh, well, that's something we're going to have to remedy. That's um, the truth. Yeah. So it's a cool place. We have a, a big art festival down here called Art Basel. And um, it, it's held now in that area. And there's a lot of murals and uh, stuff. And there's specifically, I was down there about a month ago doing something similar. Uh, actually, it was uh, my anniversary. And uh, the missus and I went down there masked and it's all outdoors and stuff. And there's a, a graffiti museum, the world's first graffiti museum, they claim to be. Awesome. And it was pretty cool. And it had some artwork that was really pretty powerful and along the same lines of what you just described in Durham. So that's pretty neat. Yeah, that's fantastic. I guess the last, the sort of reminds me, the last formal museum, if you want to call it that, that I was at, one of the last, uh, was I was at Closure D actually in February right before you know everything got shut down right. uh, and closure is in berlin my brother lives in berlin so we were hanging out after the conference i stayed a couple of days and i got to walk along the the berlin wall which i don't know if you know but part of the berlin wall is covered in murals right including the, some of the really famous sort of uh, protest art there so right. yeah it, it's super cool very neat so look at that we got uh, a two for the price of one experience of art from you today. It's pretty. Oh yeah. Pretty Sorry. Cool. I'm just going to inject that there. No, not at all. This is great. Cool. So in preparation for the show, I did, you know, try to do a little homework on you and, uh, boy, you're, you're, uh, you're an interesting cat. You've got a, a science background, uh, which is, which is pretty neat. One, can you, you, you have your PhD in genetics and genomics. So uh, tell right. us a little bit about that. Yeah. So as an undergrad, maybe a couple of lifetimes ago, uh, I was studying computer science as well as biology. And I, I did some work at Sandia National Labs as an intern where I got really interested in sort of systems theory. And this was very uh, theoretical stuff, right? Like Sandia is full of a bunch of extremely brilliant physicists uh, who, who are sort of abstracting problems down to, to you know, a, a pretty high degree. Uh, but it sort of led me to a really strong, persistent interest throughout my life on sort of, I guess, what you call complex systems theory or the way that, that large interconnected systems uh, work. 
or don't work. And so when I finished my undergraduate degree, I, I sort of thought about what I wanted to do. And it, it seemed like the fusion of that computer science systems level thinking and biology was an interesting place to be. And so that's how I ended up going to Duke for my PhD in, in genetics and genomics, as you said, uh, where I sort of did some, some research on combinatorial effects uh, in cells that moderate gene expression. Uh, in particular, this is at the, the level of RNA regulation. So after going back to your eighth grade high school biology classes, uh, all the cells in your body have the same DNA sequence in them. But what makes an eye cell different than a skin cell, different than a muscle cell, different than a stomach cell, at least one of the things, is which of those genes get turned on and turned off under certain circumstances. Mm. And the actual control of that decision-making, if you will, is unsurprisingly an extremely complex system, nonlinear dynamics. And we sort of are very bad at predicting how those things work, even though we understand a lot of the individual interactions and chemistry that goes on. So I sort of pursued that same interest through that field, trying to explore at least some small aspects of how the combinatorial control and the, the interaction of many different small moving parts combine to affect the behavior of the whole of a system like that. That's fascinating stuff. So there's so many things I want to dive into there. So what, one of the things uh, you talked about was RNA. And specifically, I, I saw in your graduate research, you were um, studying RNA binding proteins and their effects on target messenger RNA. And uh, messenger RNA is actually in the news uh, recently. I, I think we all just saw um, the, the Pfizer coronavirus vaccine with 90% effectiveness. And it's an, it's an mRNA vaccine. And apparently that's different than the other kinds of vaccines that, I mean, we've all been getting since childhood. Yep. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that? Like what, what makes these yeah. vaccines different interesting. or interesting? Yeah. I'm not a vaccinologist, but you know, I have, I can play one on TV, I guess. My wife actually did vaccine design for her PhD. So I have a little bit of secondhand <laughs> knowledge sure. from osmosis, right? Um, but uh, most of the vaccines that you, you're, you've gotten, like you said throughout your life, the you know, chickenpox vaccine, if you're a little, little younger than me, or polio and MMR, you know, all these sorts of vaccines, uh, smallpox, are usually either recombinant protein, which means they're, they're made in either a test tube or in a, a lab animal and extracted, uh, and they're just a small protein that that is usually a chunk of the thing you're vaccinating against, whether it's a virus or a bacteria, or they're what we call attenuated or killed organisms. So if it uh, smallpox is uh, actually you're vaccinated with a different related virus that has been partially killed, and that allows your immune system to say, hey, this is, this is not good. Uh, you know, I can fight this off because it's not as virulent, not as serious as smallpox itself. But the, the things that your immune system learned from that experience is sufficient to protect you then against smallpox, that's a for instance. So that's sort of the more traditional way is you, you inject something that looks like the thing you're trying to protect against. Uh, mRNA vaccines, on the other hand, so again, back to your eighth grade biology class, uh, mRNA encodes for proteins. So in, in you sort of in your cells, the DNA is what's called transcribed into an mRNA, which is in what's called translated into a protein that actually usually does the work of that gene when we think about that sort of process. Uh, this is something called the central dogma of molecular biology. The way that 
mRNA vaccines work is that instead of making the protein either in a lab animal or a test tube with bacteria or however, and then extracting it and then giving it to you, they're actually giving you the message that makes the protein. So the goal here is that your own cells will take up this message, this mRNA, and then create some of the protein. And then your immune system will similarly recognize that and say, hey, this is not normal. I, you know, I don't want this in me. And you'll develop an immune response against it. I believe, and now I'm talking a little bit out of school because I, I, I don't know off the top of my head, but I believe if it gets uh, sort of approved, this will be the first RNA vaccine uh, on the market for public use. I think that it's a, a sort of an approach in technology that's been in development for a few other uses, but I don't think there are any others that are currently out there. Wow. So it's super interesting. I mean, there are other different challenges, right? One of the advantages of it, I think, is that, you know, making recombinant protein is expensive and takes a lot of time. Making mRNAs is actually relatively simple and cheap. I mean, all things compared. One of the other challenges, though, that you might have seen in, in the recent press releases is that mRNA is also much less stable as a molecule mm. than proteins or killed viruses or whatever. So the vaccine itself has to be stored at, at uh, much colder temperatures. So I it's see. a lot less shelf stable, right? right? So that's obviously going to present some logistical concerns and, and problems with, you know, how do we how do we get the shift around the country, around the world, et cetera, maintaining it at like minus 90 degrees right. uh, so that it doesn't degrade. How do you get billions of vaccines out there and maintain quality control? That's exactly that's a tough problem, which I mean, interestingly, right, the, the smallpox vaccine, you know, is a amazing story of human ingenuity and science triumphing over nature in some sense. And part of the reason that it was so effective and worked so well and was so globally capable and possible was that it's super stable. So when they make the vaccine, the vials of it don't don't even have to be refrigerated, I don't think. Hmm. So, you know, people could go into sub-Saharan Africa and the places without power and, you know, rural anywhere, right? And and these these and this is what they did, right? In the 70s, the, these sort of um, huge groups of of humanitarian workers came, you know, went all over the world. And then you just dip a little needle in the vial of the liquid and sort of jab it in somebody's arm. And then you say, hey, put a Band-Aid on that and, you know, you'll be fine in three days uh, and you won't get smallpox again. And, and it turns out like that was a key factor in the ability to actually globally eradicate such a terrible disease was that the vaccine itself was so stable. A triumph of the World Health Organization. That's right. And, and really easy to transport and easy to administer and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, the logistics are definitely, you know, the science is amazing, but the logistics are kind of amazing, too, when you think about having to vaccinate that many people. Totally. And uh, I'm not trying to uh, troll here or parrot any sort of anti-vax conspiracy theory or anything, but are, are there, I guess with, with any vaccine, there are some safety concerns. And um, I think I, we're all taking heart that the folks behind the development of these vaccines are scientists and they're responsible and ethical actors. Um, but as you said, I mean, it is a new uh, treatment, but, but mRNA vaccines in and of themselves, like the field isn't that new either, is it, uh, to your knowledge? I mean, it's not a new idea, right? right? I don't know that any of them have sort of been fast-tracked in this way. So I, I don't know if there are any other mRNA vaccines on the market currently. I, I know that at least a couple others have been in development for some time. Um, that's I mean, something worth looking up. Right. You know, w whether this would actually be the first one sort of with a major rollout. I mean, the nice thing about 
you know, in consideration, right? mRNA, it, it's not like a magic molecule. There's nothing sort of mystical about it, right? We understand what mRNA is. We, yeah. we understand why it works as a vaccine, right? So it's not, it's not new in that sense. Like the concepts behind it are, are pretty well established. Um, but, you know, the last 20 to 30 years ha has definitely seen a pretty significant advancements in our sort of manufacturing capabilities and the ability to to make these things quickly and effectively and quality control and all that kind of stuff, particularly around nucleic acids, which is what mRNA is. Right, right. And uh, in, in fact, I saw um, this is not not really the same thing, but sort of an interesting jumping off point. I, I watched a, a Netflix documentary recently. The name escapes me at the moment, but it was about uh, biohacking. Oh, I, yeah. Yeah. Have you, have you seen any of that? Those, those folks are... <laughs> they're some pretty clever folks um i mean i i think it's really interesting that yeah this is almost like it, it some weird way it feels like what i and i wasn't there right but what i imagine sort of like the early computer hackers felt like in the 70s and 80s with like their you know first home computers and whatever it's like all of a sudden you can have a home lab in your garage and you can make yeast do crazy things right right like that wasn't something that wasn't something we could do 20 years ago you need a lab at a university to affect yeast genomes and you know directed ways and no not anymore yeah that's yeah i think the guy was saying he he's actually selling at home crispr kits that you can yes. obtain for like less than 50 bucks uh you can modify your own genetic sequence in some crazy way that that seems so, it's epic uh, i mean yeah. it's, it's 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 huge right yeah. and there's a reason that jennifer doudna and and co won the Nobel Prize this year for CRISPR. And, you know, I think it was kind of interesting because that's a fairly new discovery. And, you know, a lot of times the Nobel Committee is much more sort of, okay, well, we're going to wait 20 years to see what the impact of this thing is, right? It's not quite as common that that sort of younger investigators, right? you know, people who are sort of mid-career, mid I guess, even, uh, would end up with the Nobel Prize. But I think that, you know, it's pretty clear, the writing's on the wall here, that CRISPR is such a game changer across the board that yeah it's 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 just phenomenal interesting change and i you know i remember when that discovery happened i was in graduate school right when those papers were published and i was in an rna lab um you know and crispr is an rna uh driven system or nucleic acid driven system so yeah i mean that was all very closely sort of related to the work that we were doing in the lab i was in and so everybody was you know super excited about it that's very cool so, yeah, I mean, you've spent a fair amount of time, you know, in labs and, and schools and teaching this stuff, and it's really coming through, I think. I'm, I'm really enjoying this biology refresher, if you will. I'm sure, you know, hopefully the listeners are too. I wanted to ask you, so one, one of the other things that I, that I found interesting when doing research uh, for the show was you taught intro to chemistry and biochemistry for prescribed excuse me, prescribing psychologists. That sounds right. like a fun story. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in fact, I still do. Uh, oh, really? I, yeah. Yeah. I guess I'm adjunct faculty or external faculty or something at the New Mexico State University for that program, which is a postdoctoral master's degree in psychopharmacology. So you know, sort of life history here. My mom is a psychologist and you know, I grew up in New Mexico, which is a pretty rural state, relatively, you know, relatively low socioeconomically, like, it, you know, it's a fairly poor state. Uh, healthcare is so-so there. 
especially in the more rural areas and and like a lot of this country mental health often even gets the shorter end of that stick right right so growing up there were not a ton of psychiatrists available in in new mexico and, and furthermore something like half of them in the entire state lived in albuquerque which is the the one sort of big city in new mexico and new mexico is the fifth biggest state in the country by land area right so if you lived in one of these rural towns and you needed to see a psychiatrist for for medications you know good luck i mean it could be a six-hour drive and a you know three-month wait wow so there was a movement i guess in the, the 90s to get 90s and early 2000s nationally to provide psychologists with postdoctoral training in you know anatomy and physiology and and chemistry and biology to the point where they could prescribe the kinds of medications that psychiatrists would often prescribe right you know in sort of a similar way to the you know way that nurse practitioners are not mds but they're able to prescribe right and my mom took that set of courses and got very involved in the program and she became the first prescribing psychologist in the country other than some DOD, uh, Department of Defense uh, uh, prescribing psychologist. So that was sort of the, the model that it was built on. So she actually wrote the law that got passed in New Mexico to allow psychologists to prescribe. After doing that, she decided that she, she when she took the training that I spoke of, it was sort of a national program where, you know, there was a class in Chicago and then a class in LA or a class in New York. And, you know, we were fortunate enough that she was able to do that at that point in her career and take those flights and, you know, do 18 classes and you know, over weekends and whatever. Um, but a lot of psychologists in New Mexico didn't have that advantage. Uh, so she wanted to start a program in New Mexico to train psychologists there the same way. So she founded a program there to teach essentially that same coursework and prepare them for the national exam to become licensed so that they could be prescribing psychologists in New Mexico. Uh, when I finished my PhD, it was, it was kind of funny she and my dad were visiting my house here in North Carolina. And one of the classes, right, one of part of the, that curriculum is, okay, you know, let's start with the model of the atom and go all the way through biochemistry and basic genetics, right? Because you know, sort of fundamental biology stuff before you get into the anatomy and the physiology and the, and the you know, pharmacology stuff, uh, that foundational class. She had a, a friend who had been teaching it for quite some time who called her while they were here at my house in, in North Carolina and said, hey, you know, Dr. Levine, I, I really love teaching the class, but my, my day job responsibilities have sort of become to the point where I can't commit to doing it again, right? Mm. So, you know, I need you to find somebody else. And I remember my mom and dad were sitting on the couch and, you know, he was obviously very involved in the whole process with her. And he, she turned to him and said, oh my God, this has been such a difficult class for me to find people to teach, right? It's a subject that uh, I just don't have the right connections for. And my dad turned to her and said, I guess you could ask your son if he'd do it. <laughs> and so they did. And so I have. And so for the last handful of, of iterations, you know, I think six years or so, I'm teaching that course for psychologists who want to get uh, prescriptive authority in New Mexico. So I, I dust off my, my basic, <laughs> basic biochemistry all the way through uh, molecular genetics and teach that class to, you know, a handful, 15 to 20 postdoctoral psychologists. That is really a cool story. Wow, they learned so much there. What and what does your dad do? My dad is retired. He was a teacher. He taught at the community college. He started a program in facilities maintenance. So he taught people small engine repair, painting, carpentry, roofing, electrical, plumbing, basically how to be the guy in charge of a largish building and do all the fixing that needed to be done. 
This explains so much of it. So those of us that know you, Marshall, you are uh, also, uh, you know, quite the handyman. Uh, you've always got some project going on, a project that would terrify me, I must add. Uh, and you're just like routinely doing. Tell us about what was the, the, the latest uh, home improvement project you undertook? Well, there's one ongoing currently, which is uh, when we bought our house, it, the basement was unfinished. So it's just sort of concrete floor and, and you know, no walls. So I am in the process of finishing it into living space that includes like a bedroom and a full bathroom and like a home theater entertaining area. So that's, you know, electrical and plumbing and, and adding a fireplace and all, all those fun things. And uh, how, how, what percentage of that work are you doing yourself? Uh, probably less on this project than previous ones, just because sort of uh, daily life has, has gotten busier over the last five, 10 years. But um, sure. I'm trying to do as much of it as I can. I mean, I'm running a lot of the heating and air conditioning system. I'm sort of managing a lot of that myself. I'm going to do the shower, but, you know, tiling all the shower myself. I'm probably going to build the, the vanity for the bathroom. I'm going to build all of that because it's kind of a fun woodworking project. Uh, I'm going to build a little built-in bar cabinet for entertain the entertaining space, and then obviously all the the networking and you know fun tech toys that are going to go in with you know cat six everywhere and and speakers in the walls and ceilings and all that kind of stuff. So if you ever invite me over, that sounds like the part of the house I want to hang out in. It's got the bar and all the the gizmos. <laughs> That's right. Although although I think you and I might have a good time hanging out uh, in the in the garage talking about fishing too. Oh, certainly. That is it. That's right. I, I recently discovered you're you're a fisherman as well. Uh, nowhere near as accomplished as you, but yes. Oh, you give me too I enjoy much. Enjoy it. Do you fly fish or or uh, conventional tackle or conventional? Because I haven't. I haven't figured out the fly fishing thing yet. I would love to, yeah. but um, I just, I just never really learned it. I mean, I grew up fishing with my dad with sort of more conventional tackle on the boat, you know? Right. And, and I've continued doing that. We live um, walking distance from the Eno river, which is a, a great little river here in Durham. And, you know, I've enjoyed fishing there occasionally. I can take my daughter down she caught her first fish down there a couple of years ago, a little sunfish. So, but it's super easy, right? It's right here. Right. So, I love going to the coast and sort of doing more serious, you know, game fishing, but that that's a pretty big commitment. Whereas, you know, after work, you can walk down to the, to the Eno and throw a line in and even that's pretty darn good. That's right. That's right. So it's funny, uh, a colleague of ours, um, the fellow Cognitech, Dan Diagiar, uh, is the one that got me into fly fishing. And, uh, so a little shout out to him, but, um, I think what, what I enjoy about it so much, I mean, you know, the same, I grew up fishing also, um, it was a family activity, but it also combines a little bit of that maker uh, ethos, right? So it's it's really common to get into tying your own flies. I mean, you certainly don't have to. You can you can purchase them, you know, pre-made, and they they often come out better when the pros do it. But but it <laughs> it is it is a lot of fun to you know tie your own fly and then you know put your line in the water and you, you just feel more connected to the experience, I guess is one way to put it. And, and, you know, it's also a, a presentation that, you know, is less common for the fish, right? Some, sure. Yeah. That's, that's I mean, I think fun. you're definitely onto something with the sort of connectedness, right? I, I, I would say, you know, people are like, Oh, you end up back in tech. Like, aren't you using stuff with your PhD? And, you know, 
as you sort of pointed out, right? I've had sort of this strange path through career and life and, and hobbies and whatever. Um, but I think one of the, the fundamental similarities there is something about that, like understanding the problem and the thing you're trying to do at a very sort of fundamental low level and then doing it right. Even if, even if you can buy it, right. Like even if I could go buy a bar or I could go buy a vanity, right. Or I could go, you know, buy a piece of tech or whatever, uh, or a fly, mm-hmm. there is a sort of fundamental, like, and I would argue maybe a little bit sort of fundamentally human, uh, connection when you make something yourself with your own hands. Right. I mean, one of my favorite books, um, I don't know if you've read it, but it's called uh, shop class as Soulcraft um, mm-hmm. by Matthew Crawford. And, um, it, it's sort of, it's, I think it's subtitled an inquiry into the value of work. Right. And in a lot of ways to me, it's sort of a spiritual successor to Zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance in a lot of ways. Right. Right. Where it's about, it's about developing, um, an appreciation for quality, whatever that sort of means to you. Uh, and it's funny cause you know, I think we had that discussion yesterday with, <laughs> with Rich, the, the, when we were talking, uh, at Cognitech about sort of tools and, and ways to assess quality of solutions. But th- there's an interesting tie there with, with Matthew Crawford's book about how humans have evolved to sort of ne- have a need, a deep-seated need to uh, make things. And, and mm-hmm. sort of, you don't actually own your things until you know them well enough to take them apart and put them back together, right? Which is, right. I think that's an interesting perspective for someone in our career, right? Which is building software. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I think there's something there. I, I'm going to have to go read that book again now. I think, think so about too, it in that yeah. context. Homo habilis was uh, the tool maker, right? So, I mean, we've been making tools as a, you know, a species or uh, for, for a very long time. I, I definitely think there's something to that. Uh, I, I certainly feel drawn to it. And I think a lot of people in our industry do, right? I mean, yeah. I, Obviously, there's some some amount of self-selection or whatever, but but a lot of the people that I meet and you know people who have been developers and or people who are even becoming developers who are drawn to the the field are also tinkerers of woodworking or of electronics or of fishing gear or maybe all of the above, right? Yeah, I, I would say like over overrepresentedly so. You know what I mean? Mm. And music. Yes. Well, certainly. Speaking of music, man. Cognitect. Uh, that's that's quite a group of musicians. Yeah, and then those of us that are really bad at it, but uh, enjoy the process nevertheless. Yep, I'm squarely in that camp. <laughs> so th- that that actually nice segue to you know it occurs to me we've been talking now for the the time's been flying for me. This has been so much fun so far. But, you know, we haven't really told anybody what it is that you do. What What is your, your role at Cognitech or now Newbank? Yeah, right. So I am on the Datomic team. I joined Cognitech in 2014. And actually, I sort of bounced around a few different roles, that, that, or I guess you could say my role evolved. Uh, I used to be sort of more on the consulting sales side of things. But I moved before too long into a little more technical uh, sort of solutions selling, I guess you'd say, you know, it's like a, a sales engineer sort of role. Uh, and then further on to the Datomic team where now I'm sort of part of the support side of things for existing Datomic customers. 
I still do a lot of pre and post sales support. So I guess you'd, you know, maybe classify it as sort of solutions architecture in a sense when people come to us with a something they want to build or a problem they want to solve and say, hey, I've heard of Datomic. Maybe that's something that I think could be useful for me. A lot of my time is spent talking to them about, okay, well, what are you actually trying to build? What are the constraints of your system? You know, what do you think? Well, why did you come to Datomic, right? And, and then working through with them, yes, in fact, here's how I would use Datomic or, you know, here's maybe why I wouldn't. Uh, or here's parts of the system that I think Datomic is a great fit for. Here are the things where I see you're going to have challenges. Uh, and then as we've joined the Newbank family, as, as you mentioned, I've sort of brought some of that same activity to bear on internal Newbank projects, not just for external uh, Datomic customers. Right. And you're still doing um, external uh, engagements yes, as well. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. That's right. So yeah, uh, the Datomic team has in fact uh, expanded as as sort of a follow-on from the Cognitech joining the Newbank family. So we're adding resources, uh, but Datomic, both Datomic Cloud and Datomic On-Prem, both flavors of the product, remain totally available to the public. They're still for sale, though still fully supported. And I, I still spend the majority of my time interacting with customers who are non-New Bank uh, customers. But as you can imagine, uh, New Bank being a very large consumer of both Clojure and Datomic, there are plenty of interesting groups and problems and, and services within New Bank too that we're really excited to be working with. Certainly. And it's good news. I know there was some mild concern, I guess, when the when the news broke that uh, Cognitech had joined New Bank uh, about you know, what would this mean? And it sounds like, I mean, adding resources is, uh, is always a, a good sign. Yeah, totally. I, you know, in fact, shortly after it was publicly announced, I, I sort of re reached out to basically all of our enterprise customers. And I think the majority of our, our regular pro customers as well of Datomic on-prem and, and said, Hey, you know, just letting you know this happened and we're very excited about it. And we think it's going to make life better for all of you. Right. So, but, you know, let me know if you want to talk. And I, I had a bunch of conversations with various customers at various stages in their process. And I think every single one of them saw it as a, as a good thing, right? Yeah. They, they all said, this is great. You know, we love Datomic and having another company with, you know, the size and footprint and capabilities of Nubank behind it just makes it that much more likely that it's going to be persistent and successful and has the resources that it needs to really grow. So, Yes, I think across the board, it's it's good for Newbank and it's good for Cognitech and it's good for Datomic. Awesome. So I, knowing that I was going to have you on, I'm like, okay, well, now I want to ask Marshall a bunch of Datomic stuff as well. And you, you sort of alluded to a lot of the questions that I had a few moments ago. But what, you know, what is the Datomic elevator pitch? You know, what problems does it solve? What does it excel at? What are the indications for use, uh, doctor? <laughs> nice. Um, so I'm sure many people listening to this particular podcast have heard some amount of the pitch before, but but my version of it goes something like Datomic is a fully ACID compliant, transactional, history aware database. So any case where you would reach for, hey, I'm storing data that needs to be transactional. Any case where you'd say, hey, I have important business data. Uh, any case uh, from, some, from a more operational scalability standpoint, any place where I have uh, scalability needs around read, right? I have lots of consumers of this data. Those are all places where Datomic is a really excellent fit. Obviously, Datomic is built by the same people as, as Clojure. 
So it shares a lot of the same ethos. So if there are aspects of closure, the language that appeal to you, you know, I would say that the fundamental driving values behind Datomic are closely reflected in those behind uh, Datomic and closure. Um, so, you know, immutability, uh, being data oriented, uh, simplicity as defined by Rich, uh, you know, those are all values that you will find reflected in Datomic the product in the same way that you find them in Clojure. So those are all the places where I would say, you know, yes, Datomic seems like a really good fit for you. Uh, obviously it has plenty of interesting capabilities. You know, Datalog is, I personally like Datalog a lot more than SQL. Uh, obviously I'm slightly biased there, mm. but but those are sort of the more high level points. I, I mean, the, big, the biggest anti-indication for Datomic is that you, you truly need scalable write. And, and by truly, I mean, you know, your system really does need the capabilities that a truly right scalable system like, you know, TitanoDB or Cassandra can provide. Uh, mm -hmm. It turns out that a lot of people think they need that, but in reality, you know, the architecture of their system is such that they, they can build a system that is perfectly feasible to use on a, a datomic transactional kind of system without needing scalable right. But Granted, there are use cases that just need to consume ridiculous amounts of data, you know, write mm -hmm. ridiculous amounts of data, and that is not where Datomic is, is intended to be used. Right. Well, you answered my next question there. You also, you know, obviously the uh, folks behind Datomic are the same folks that are behind Clojure. Uh, can you use Datomic uh, effectively apart from the Clojure or even the Java ecosystem? That's an interesting question. I think the answer is probably it depends what you mean by effectively. Hmm. So Datomic on-prem has a, a fully functional Java API. So right off the bat, if you want to use it from Java, thumbs up. You know, we have lots of fairly large customers who consume it exclusively from Java. And that's a, a totally, you know, greased path. Um, there is actually a community library called Molecule that, uh, recently released a, a new version, I believe. Um, Mark Grew is, is the guy behind it. Um, and it's a Scala uh, interop. So if you're sort of coming from the Scala world, I think it's a pretty good path too. Uh, you know, I, I don't know Scala, I don't use it, but uh, I've heard that people very much like Molecule. Um, off the JVM is a little harder. We do have some customers historically who have been sort of Python shop. And one in particular I'm thinking of what they actually did is that they had a short engagement with Cognitect back in the day when we were sort of doing consulting for hire, they had us build them essentially a Datomic endpoint, right? So they really wanted Datomic. They wanted the audit history. They wanted data log. They wanted all of that immutability, like all those things that, that we just talked about, but they, they were strictly a Python shop and they didn't want to move off of that. So what they did is they put Datomic in and they built a relatively thin uh, client layer in front of it that intercepted you know, their particular DSL for what they wanted to, to design for reads and writes and converted them over to the Clojure peer API and then hit the, the atomic system with those. So obviously the, the glib answer is yes, of course you can use it from anything. Just write a front end that consumes whatever language you care about. Sure. Granted, that's not, you know, that's not the same as saying, yeah, sure, here, here is the library to use it in programming language X, right? All that said, I think that 
there's also the potential for this story to get better over time. Uh, Datomic Cloud, as you know, has the ability to run what we call Datomic Ions, which are where you can deploy your closure functions directly into the database, uh, and they run on the same JVM that, that your system is running. I think it's an interesting idea to say, well, you could sort of, there's nothing that would keep you from deploying arbitrary HTTP endpoints for all of the Datomic APIs into that, right? We don't provide that, but it's a relatively simple, uh, I don't want to say simple, it's a relatively easy process to imagine how you might write uh, an HTTP served Datomic endpoint that just consumes JSON data or whatever you, whatever you want to send it uh, via IONS. Now, granted, you'd have to have somebody who knew how to write the IONS enclosure, but it certainly doesn't prevent you from then using that from any other kind of system. And from there, um, since that's all running on AWS, I mean, you can integrate with, you know, everything else there. And uh, there are a lot of options for integrating from there elsewhere with other tools. And, right, know. exactly. I mean, IONS, you know, already have pretty pretty decent tooling for consuming messages from Lambdas, for instance. Mm -hmm. So you can very easily plumb a Lambda up to your ION. And then, as you know, ION, oh, sorry, Lambdas are sort of the, magic glue of AWS. So mm. you can connect them to anything, right? Mm. CloudWatch events or SNS queues or whatever else is out there. It seems like almost everything connects to Lambdas pretty, pretty seamlessly. So yeah, I can imagine you could sort of build all the cloud connections you wanted once you had that initial thing. Right. And that's on the consumption side. What about producing? Is there a way to like read, you know, what, how, how would you stitch together something on the other end, right? So like, I, I want to get notifications or messages or put something on a queue um, when data comes in? Is this a... Ah, into Datomic, you mean? Correct. Right. So Datomic on-prem has something called the transaction report queue, which Correct. you can actually subscribe to from a, you know, a JVM process and you get push notifications. Uh, Datomic Cloud doesn't have that explicitly, but if you were sort of living in AWS land, um, because Datomic's notion of time is sort of fundamental to everything it does, you can very clearly articulate in a client application, hey, is something new showed up since I looked last, right? So it would be a polling loop kind of implementation, but it would be a polling loop that's very, very straightforward to write that you could then sort of connect back out. But there's no, there's no sort of server sent event hook in Datomic Cloud, at least not currently. Right. So one of the things that we've been touching on, on and off here, are the different flavors of Datomic, right? So there's on-prem and then there's uh, cloud and cloud has different topologies. So just, I guess, why don't you walk us through a little bit of just, just the two main product offerings, why you might choose one over the other beside the obvious, like I, I have a need to run something on-premises as opposed to in the cloud. Although that's certainly one use case, there may be you know, other valid reasons why one would choose that if you need features from the one versus the other. Um, how, can you walk us through that a little bit? Sure. Um, so that's right. Datomic on-prem is what used to just be called Datomic, right? That was the original product uh, that was released. And it was always intended to run in the cloud and actually intended to run on AWS, but it uses it from the get-go had sort of modular storage and, and the transactor and what we call the peer library. And it very quickly after release became obvious that people wanted to plug in their own storage as the back end of that, right? So it originally released with DynoDB support, but now supports, you know, Cassandra and uh, SQL stores and sort of a dev disk 
uh, option. Obviously, as you sort of pointed out, the the really obvious answer to that question is if you're not in AWS, you have to use Datomic on. Uh, Datomic Cloud is AWS native only. And certainly we have a number of customers who for either historic reasons or business reasons can't be running in AWS, right? You know, AWS keeps expanding their footprint, but there are cases where we had financial institutions whose government said the data must reside within the borders of our country. And if AWS doesn't have a data center in your country, well, there you go. Right. Just as a, for instance, then obviously we have many uh, sort of historical customers, Nubank included, who, who used on-prem since very early on and cloud didn't exist. Uh, and we certainly wouldn't recommend that any of them jump ship and move to cloud uh, at least not without talking to us fairly substantially first. The story with Datomic Cloud, uh, as we alluded to, it's AWS only, uh, and that's because it's an AWS marketplace product. So you acquire Datomic Cloud by going to the AWS marketplace and you click on the, yes, I want to subscribe to this product. And you then can immediately launch a CloudFormation template in your account, which sets up all of the stuff needed to run Datomic. And your build for that on a per hour basis. So it's strictly usage based. Mm. There are, you know, some advantages, to, certainly potential cost advantages to having that usage based pricing, depending on what your usage model looks like. As you also alluded to, we have two different topologies of Datomic Cloud. We have what we call solo and production. So solo is, as it sounds like a single instance, it's intended to be fully, it has all the semantics of Datomic Cloud, right? It does all the same things, but they're small, right? It uses the smallest instance type we could find. It doesn't have a huge cache. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not intended to be high performance, but it's also about a dollar a day and that's all in. So wow. you can run a Datomic Cloud solo system for 30 bucks a month. Uh, and that's that's the Datomic cost and the AWS cost all rolled up in, into that. That's fabulous. Yeah, it, you know, it's 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 very much an approachable uh, cost for people who want to explore the technology, and that was certainly the goal. Now, when you're ready to actually deploy an application that you want to have, you know, high availability and bigger boxes to run more queries against, and sort of all the all the goodness that we want to think about when it comes to you know big caches and performance, mm -hmm. uh, we have the Datomic production topology, Datomic, excuse me, Datomic Cloud production topology. And that includes multiple instances. The instances are bigger. They have large caching automatically, et cetera, et cetera. And it's more expandable in that uh, it allows you to launch what we call query groups, which you can sort of think of as just an additional read uh, instance mm. that can be you know, tasked. For instance, you could have a query group that dedicated to your web app and another query group dedicated to your back office application and maybe a query group dedicated to your analytics people so that the workloads from each of those go to different places and aren't competing for resources against the, the main system. And you can tune them independently. You know, I'm sure they have exactly. different, right. Yeah. Yep. In fact, you can choose different instance types per, per query group, depending on what the, the needs are. They can have auto scaling rules that differ, et cetera. Um, and even further, in fact, uh, you can deploy different ions to each of them. So you, in addition to them being separate resources, you may even decide to deploy entirely separate code bases to each of the query groups, right? And that, that's sort of a application architecture decision, but it can be uh, a very interesting way of modeling a system when you're essentially standing up database instances. So every time you add an instance here, you're adding compute and memory and cache to your overall database capability, mm. but you're also adding 
your web apps compute capability. So it, it's kind of a cool uh, dual usage of, of those resources that way. So what is the path? Uh, say you, you start with you know, a small application with modest needs and you start off on solo and then, you know, to your elation, you know, your application becomes more successful and, um, you know, you can justify the additional expenditure and, you know, you want to turn this into a bigger thing or need to scale it up. What does the, the transition from solo to production look like? Is there, how, how, what is it, what, what's entailed in making that, that move? Sure. They are separate cloud formation templates. Mm -hmm. So if you're sort of AWS land savvy, you essentially update, well, it depends a little bit on how you got there, but effectively you take down your compute template and restart with the new compute template. So in practice, it probably requires 10-ish minutes of downtime, mm -hmm. maybe a little less actually. If you're really fast, you could probably get it done in you know three to five, depending on how long instances take to come up in AWS. Um, but but from a practical standpoint, it, it is intended to be a very straightforward transition. Right. And your data, obviously, you don't. I mean, you you retain all of the same data and just expand. Yes. Everything. Yep. That, that's correct. You. Um, in fact, you don't even necessarily have to delete. We, we split the stack, so the parts of the system that are called the storage stack mm -hmm. uh, are separate. A separate AWS CloudFormation template from the compute resources, the actual EC2 instances. You don't even touch the storage stack when you do that upgrade. Furthermore, if you actually did delete your storage stack, that doesn't even delete the persistent storage itself. It just deletes the CloudFormation stack. Uh, we have that configured to retain the actual storages. So if you delete all the stacks, as long as you come back and create the stack with the same name again, your data wall will still be there. I have to believe somebody made a boo-boo at one time. <laughs> And uh, was very happy to discover that they could get their data back. I mean, let's hope uh, nobody made that boo-boo. But yes, uh, <laughs> the fortunate thing is it would not be catastrophic. Yeah, that is fortunate. So um, recently we also saw the introduction of a new, I, not, I, wouldn't, I don't know if it's flavor or how we say it, but it's something certainly that developers... Um, well, I, I certainly got excited about to speak for myself, which was DevLocal. Um, tell us a little bit about DevLocal. Yeah. So alluding back to your question about the differences between on-prem and cloud, I think it's mostly upside, but there were certainly a contingent of users uh, uh, and quite a few people sort of commented on this, that one of the things they missed, they, they liked moving to cloud, but occasionally they'd be working on the train or they had really bad Wi-Fi at grandma's house, or, you know, despite it being sort of all this very technical, everybody's remote working, et cetera, there is a real need for some people to be able to do their work, their development without an internet connection. And of course, when you say, well, Datomic Cloud can only run in AWS, that's sort of a, a well, tough, then if you don't have internet, you can't get to AWS. Uh, so DevLocal, in addition to some other sort of uh, feature roles or, or needs that it fills, takes uh, the place of the ability in on-prem to just download the bits and run them on your laptop. So DevLocal is another, I guess you could call it a mode in some mm -hmm. sense, um, but it is a different product, right? It, it, it's its own download. You register and you get it. Uh, it's in the, in the Cognitech uh, dev tools, which you can register for and, and download for, for no cost. But the cool thing about DevLocal 
is it's on the inside, essentially, it is a closure library. So the way you actually use it is you put it in your dependencies file, and then in your Datomic connection configuration, you know, the map that you send to Datomic to say, hey, connect me to this database, you tell it instead of using the cloud connection, use the dev local connection, and it automatically handles rerouting those requests to that internal library that you've included, which does its persistence by storing on disk. So you don't have to change any of your code, right? If you have an application that you've written to use the client API or in an ion, you can just change that one key in your configuration map, you know, which you can obviously do dynamically because uh, we're in Lisp and we love dynamics. Mm -hmm. uh, you can just change that key in your configuration map. And all of a sudden, all of your, your requests to the Datomic API, and it's, it uses the same client API as cloud, they're automatically redirected to that local implementation. So you immediately can, you know, work without Wi-Fi or another, you know, very common use case that we heard people wanting some solution for was sort of the CI mm -hmm. option, right? Like I don't need my CI to connect to a real database, but I want my test suite to run and I want it to run against the real Datomic API. Uh, so this gives you a path for doing that. And just on your CI box, it, it automatically connects to that, that internal, you know, library that's using the disk for persistence. Very cool. And you said, you mentioned DevTools, not to be confused with DevLocal, of which, you know, the, the latter is a, a, local is a part of the tools. Um, that also now includes Rebel. That's right. So at the same time, or maybe shortly after we released uh, DevLocal, we sort of packaged both of those up as part of the, you know, what we're thinking of as a set of tools that uh, developers using the Cognitect tool set, right? That being Clojure and Datomic. Uh, may be interested in using together, right? And there's nothing that says you have to, but when you go download DevTools, you get Rebel, mm. which stands for the Read Eval Browse Loop, mm. which is a sort of graphical uh, browser interface to your closure development system. So it, it's, a, it's a viewer and a data explorer, and in fact, even includes a little box where you can input closure code directly. Although I think most people who are sort of using it in anger are, are connecting it to their REPL, whether they're running that in you know, Emacs or, or Cursive or whatever it is. But what's cool about it is that it sort of automatically uh, inspects various data structures and has a smart nav ability. So you can sort of display things like maps and you see keys and, and you can dive down into the nested maps and you, you know, come back up and navigate in and out of those things in sort of a, a you know, fairly intuitive way. Uh, which is a little easier than repeatedly sort of trying to do that at a REPL. You can actually just explore the data structure interactively in, in the REPL tool. That's pretty neat. I've not, and I've yeah, not, you're, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was gonna say, if you're more interested in that, uh, Stu gave an excellent talk about it at Conj two years ago. I've not used it extensively. I was going to say um, I, I have downloaded the bits and played with it a bit. And just recently, another colleague of ours uh, uh, and a member of the Datomic team, Robert Randolph, um, sort of put instructions out there in the world. I forget if it was on Twitter or, or where I saw it for how to get your Emacs set up with Rebel launching. And so I did do that and I'm looking forward to using it in my normal daily workflow. Cool. I, I think it's, I mean, I really like it. And I think where it's particularly cool is it sort of the, the secret boss, if you will, inside of that is, is the datafy and nav 
protocols, mm-hmm. right, which were introduced at the same time as that talk that I mentioned, that, that talk that Stu gave is actually about Datafy and Nav. The reason that Rebel can do this thing where it can dive down into a data structure and come back up and sort of know where you are is that all the, the data structures uh, in Clover Core are annotated with this Datafy and Nav metadata. And uh, if you're looking for sort of a cool, wow, that was really neat. I didn't, I, you know, mind blown experience. Uh, I would say go connect your Rebel to a Datomic Cloud database because the Datomic Cloud client API includes those same metadata directives for Datafy and Nav on Datomic data structures. So, mm. you know, I won't spoil it all, but as a for instance, when you dive down into a nested entity map, if there are references, uh, you can nav from that reference, which just looks like a long in the map because you know that's what it is. Right. Um, but the Datafy and nav rules tell it, hey, this is actually a reference to another entity. So if you nav down into a ref uh, inside of a nested entity map, it'll open up the entity map for that thing that is referenced. That's a it sounds like a great way to explore data for sure. Cool. So I, I uh, don't want to miss out on this opportunity that I've got a real life datomic expert here. Um, tell us about, you know, some of the common misconceptions, common mistakes, frequently asked question kind of thing. Like what are your top, you know, couple things that you see all the time and you just wish you could get the message out into the world, like stop doing this or no, this is, this is this way. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the big obvious one is, uh, people who've never used it sort of hear a little bit about it and they're like, immutable, doesn't that mean it's really slow and takes a lot of hard drive space, right? Uh, that's sort of the, I've seen a global presumption about, I guess what people call append only data stores, right? And mm. and I want to be clear, Datomic is not append only. Mm. Um, yes, there is some concern that append only data structures, right? If you think about like a linked list in a very simple context, right? It's hard. It's expensive to jump to the middle of a linked list, right? But Datomic isn't a linked list, uh, and in the same way that it, you know we call it an accumulate-only data structure. So yes, Datomic never forgets the past, but it does that structurally intelligently, so that when you run a query, uh, you're not sort of iterating through the whole database before you get to the data that was added at the end. That's right. not the way it's structured. That's not the way it works. Um, so that that's often a very common criticism that people say, "Wow, well, how could it possibly be fast?" And and the answer is, you know, structural sharing and trees and and intelligent indexing jobs and all these sorts of things that uh, the team has been a long time putting together make it, you know, actually quite performant, even though you're remembering everything that ever happened. So that's one big example. I think I'm trying to think if there's any other, like, please don't do this anymore. I'm sure that there are. So you just uh, mentioned something that that, that uh, sparked a question in my mind. You talked about accumulate only, and it never forgets anything. I mean, you can excise data uh-huh. from, but I'm sure you've seen that uh, used and abused. Yes, thank you. That was a, that was a perfect example. <laughs> um, so Datomic on-prem includes the ability to excise data. Excision is an API which permanently and irrevocably removes data from Datomic. Excise is was released in response to, you know, the question of, hey, I have GDPR or I have other sort of legal requirements to get rid of data from my database and you don't let me do that because you don't forget anything. Uh, So that's what it's for. And it does that thing. However, it is intended for excising, you know, very specifically, like Christian has said, forget my name, right? So I will go excise Christian Romney from the database, not 
I'm going to excise everything that happened last week because we, you know, Datomic was built to not forget things. Turns out that forgetting things is very expensive from a computational perspective and issuing very large excision commands is a surefire way to bring your transactor to a very unhappy state. Uh, so yes, don't, don't excise large groups of things at once. Uh, it is not for storage savings. It is for targeted removal of, of specific data. You might be doing it wrong if you're trying to design excise or have it, have it feature largely in your application's design. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, that said, we also appreciate that people have, uh, who have used Datomic for a long time have experienced the situation where, you know, large and their databases get larger and larger, and maybe they don't, for business reasons, don't care about things older than a certain date. We are uh, always happy to hear people's perspective on what, what kinds of things they need from the, from the tool for, you know, from the product for resolving those kinds of issues. And, you know, I think in fact, our uh, recently Robert, who you mentioned a minute ago, helped launch uh, ask.atomic. And that includes sort of feature request kind of feature tracking um, topics. And I, I believe there is one for sort of the, let me get rid of data older than a certain date, or, you know, let me save storage space by, you know, not caring about certain things. Uh, so if, you know, you're listening and you're like, man, I'd love Datomic, except feel free to please, you know, join in the conversation there and, and let us know. Very cool. Uh, so that, yeah, that is a, a brand new resource and we'll put a link to it also in the show notes. Uh, what other resources are available? I, I have a feeling I was just looking on the site the other day and, you know, there there's all sorts of information there. I don't know that folks are, understand how just how much is at your fingertips there i saw there are videos and all sorts of uh, tutorials um yeah i mean the the so ask datomic as you said is, is new and there's obviously also the datomic forums where we announce sort of new features and, and there are sort of more uh detailed you know topical discussions um the the datomic docs both the on-prem docs and the cloud docs as you said have a ton of content um, that, you know, they've grown over time and, and we're very, uh, methodical about, you know, when we get a question from a customer and they say, I don't understand X, uh, we, we try to answer them. And at the same time, put the answer in the docs in a way that the next time that comes up, we can say, look, here's the answer in the docs. Um, so, you know, e even if you have seen the docs and you haven't seen them in a few months, uh, a lot of times there, there's a ton of new, uh, descriptions, new simplifications, new content going in there. You mentioned the we have some videos that Robert has done a just killer job of making these sort of um, live tutorial videos that walk mm -hmm. you through a new feature or an API or sort of a, an interesting topic. Uh, we also do have recordings. Uh, I believe they're linked from the docs of the Day of Datomic trainings. We we have both Day of Datomic from some years ago that was focused on on-prem and Day of Datomic Cloud, and the videos of those are are up. Um, for those of you who don't know, Day of Datomic is a sort of all-day workshop, or sometimes two-day workshop, that we often put on at ClojureConj and other conferences. We've done it at Strange Loop, um, and certainly uh, when you know, sort of, we're all in the clear from this global pandemic. Uh, if you're ever in the neck of the woods where ClojureConj is going to be, I highly recommend you you sign up for the Day of Datomic. It's a blast. I love teaching it. Uh, I've taught several of them now, uh, both with Stu and one with Ben Camphouse. Uh, it, it's always a really good time. I always learn stuff, right? Because we have, we, and we have some users and customers who've been coming to Day of Datomic 
five, four, five, six times, right? I, I see the same faces in the class and they say, every time they come, they're like, yep, I still come because I still learn new stuff. And, and as I said, I'm still learning stuff from the, the students that come to the class. So right. uh, that's just a, a really fantastic, fantastic way. Yeah. And the product keeps evolving too and getting you know new features and uh, getting easier to use as, as well as simpler. Right. Yeah. Very cool. Like, so um, we've been at this for now over an hour. Uh, so this has been time has flown for me. Um, Likewise. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun talking to you. What are we like to ask uh, folks on sort of the outro uh, to share a piece of advice with the world? I'm curious to hear what you have to say. Oh my. Um, I think it, it's probably a little bit cliche, but I think now maybe more than any time, uh, I just want people to be nice to each other, right? Love one another. We're all in it together. Uh, this has been a hard year. I think for just about everybody for many, many different reasons. And, uh, you know, go give somebody a hug and, and we'll see you on the other side. Words to live by my friend. Well, all right, Marshall, thanks. We did it. We got through it. That was a, that was a blast for me. Um, thanks for your time. Um, I'm sure, you know, this, uh, this podcast will be out soon and uh, to everybody else out there, stay safe. And uh, this has been the Cognicast. have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is brought to you by Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, cognitech.com Cognicast. You can contact the show by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at cognitech.com. Our guest this week was Marshall Thompson, who is GlassOnion9, that's the digit 9, on Twitter. Our host this week was Christian Romney, who is at Christian Romney on Twitter. Episode cover art is by me, well, based on a painting called The River of Light by Frederick Edwin Church. Audio production is by Joe Smith and Jared Binford. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is by Ben Camphouse, who produces music as Pattern Shift. Look for it on any of the major streaming services. I'm Russ Olson. Please stay safe and healthy out there as we all look to better times ahead for the new year. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.